Hello, I'm Basha and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. And it seems right now that if we squint hard enough, the end of this pandemic looks like it could just about be in sight. We've got that date, the 21st of June, seared into our heads and our phones are full of memes about the chaos that's surely going to ensue once we're all let out again. And really, the only things that seem to be threatening that great reopening are variants, dreaded variants that could undermine the vaccine, prompt a spike in cases, infect the young, and that's what we're investigating this week. If you've been listening to the Slow Newscast for a while, you'll know that my colleague Matt Dancona has been following the government's pandemic response really closely. He's investigated how sick Boris Johnson really was last year when we were told that everything was fine. He's investigated what was really going on with the number 10 Halloween lockdown fiasco. And he's investigated the political decision making behind the vaccine. And today I'm handing over to him to tell us the story of the variant and what it might mean for our future living alongside COVID-19. Test and trace is only one of the elements that um, enables us to fight COVID. We are not the single silver bullet. Uh, uh, Between that business plan being published and us going into the lockdown we're currently in now, we've seen the virus mutate We've seen the new variant emerge, which was something that none of us um, had were able to predict. That's Baroness Dido Harding, head of the government test and trace strategy, addressing the Commons Science and Technology Committee on February the 3rd. And yes, she did say what you thought she said, that none of us, meaning presumably nobody in the political and public health world, could have been reasonably expected to predict that a new variant of COVID-19 would emerge to cause trouble. We'll return to Dido Harding's astonishing statement, which certainly stunned the MPs on the committee. As one of them told me, I wish I'd had a piece of toast in my hand to drop. But first to explain why it matters so much. I'm Matt Dancona, and as part of a tortoise series of audio stories on the government's pandemic strategy, I've been looking at the variants of the original virus first found in Wuhan, how they have shaped our experience of COVID, and the restrictions that have come with it, and most importantly, what their role will be in the future. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What has not been fully appreciated, as we'll see, is the extent to which, in private at least, 
Fear of variants has driven Boris Johnson's most recent pandemic strategy as much as optimism about the deployment of vaccines. As one cabinet minister put it to me, we're in a weird space right now. Vaccine euphoria punctuated by attacks of variant terror. Why do variants deserve our attention? Because they're inevitable, the fast-moving work of evolution in real time. And because the form that they take can be quite literally a matter of life and death. Here's Boris Johnson making that point very clear in Downing Street on Monday, February the 22nd, as he launches his surprisingly cautious plan for exit from lockdown. It's largely the impact of this new variant that means the NHS is under such intense pressure, with another 40,261 positive cases since yesterday. We have 38,562 COVID patients now in hospital. That's 78% higher than the first peak in uh, in April. And tragically, there have been a further 1,401 deaths. So it's more important than ever that we all remain vigilant in following the rules and that we stay at home, protect the NHS and thereby save lives. On the trail of these tiny mutants, I've spoken to more than 20 ministers, MPs, government scientific advisors, sources in pharmaceutical manufacturing and university experts working round the clock to predict what COVID will do next. It's a battle between ingenuity and evolution, between big brains and microscopic particles. And as so often in the pandemic story, It's a tale of the fuzzy space where scientific data meets political decision-making and mistakes can easily be made. On the outskirts of Cambridge, scientists are tracking the spread of the new variant of the virus. What we've got now on this this suspect virus is a little bit of circumstantial evidence. We'll also have details of a new variant of coronavirus. The new strain was out of control. The potential risk it poses, uh, it is with a very heavy heart. I must tell you, we cannot continue with Christmas as planned. Covid is the defining global emergency of our era and many of its most vivid dramas have involved political personalities in angry disagreement and the errors that have been nurtured by these tensions over when to impose this lockdown or sign off that contract or change yet another failed testing app. But the most important protagonists in this story are pathogens, the South African, Brazilian and Kentish variants of the original virus. Each, like the suspects in a murder mystery, has a very different character. And each is almost unimaginably tiny. The budding Sherlock Holmes, who goes in search of the next villain, needs more than two pipes to crack the case. He needs an electron microscope. Every virus particle, or virion, is 50 to 200 nanometers in diameter. To give you an idea of what that means, one nanometer is a hundred millionth of a meter. Looking at it another way, to the question, how many viruses can you fit on the head of a pin? The answer is about 500 million. Yet each one of those particles can differ. As virologists like to say, they come in an infinite number of flavors. And the overwhelming majority of these flavours won't make the slightest difference to the danger coronavirus represents to us. But, and it is a big but, some do. And if the mutation is lethal, climbing over the barrier set by existing vaccines, one such variant is more than enough. 
Dido Harding's remark was so surprising because it's a 101 course question in public health studies that viruses mutate all the time. If one thing was absolutely, completely predictable about COVID-19, it is that this would happen. Many scientists believe that the second wave of the Spanish flu of 1918 was deadlier because of mutation. HIV, furthermore, is divided into two main strains, each of which is subdivided into alphabetized subgroups. Regular winter flu is constantly mutating, which is why the global health community gathers every January or February to share genomic data and agree on a new re-engineered vaccine that can be administered around the world later in the year. In the case of coronavirus, the mutations matter only if they make big changes to the so-called spike protein, which the virus uses to enter human cells. Again, this might not sound like much, but imagine a building that has an automatic water sprinkler system triggered by fire and malware that disables the system. The computer code causes malfunction that burns the building to the ground. This, in effect, is what a nasty variant could do to escape vaccine protection. So far, this hasn't happened, but it might. This is why, for example, the scientists at Oxford University that cracked the vaccine code in January 2020 the breakthrough that was to enable the AstraZeneca jab, have been tracking mutations ever since. Professor Katrina Lithgow of Oxford's Big Data Institute explains in this Royal Society primer. The coronavirus RNA, we can imagine it as a string of 30,000 letters, and through genetic sequencing, we can read those letters across the genome. What we find is as the virus spreads from person to person, we can start to see mutations emerging in some individuals and then spreading into other individuals, which then go on to create this kind of evolutionary change. By looking at those changes, we can map how the virus is spreading within countries and also globally. But the word variant was not one you heard ministers or public health experts utter very often for most of 2020. As one senior advisor to the government told me, it wasn't so much ignorance as political bandwidth. Most of us just didn't get round to thinking about anything except putting out fires. Test and trace was a disaster, and then the second wave really hit us in September. We didn't start discussing variants properly until November... I don't think anybody wants to go into a second lockdown, but clearly, uh, you know, when you look at uh, what is happening, you've got, to, you've got to wonder whether we need to go further than the, uh, the rule of six that we brought in on Monday. So we'll be looking at uh, the, the local lockdowns we've got in large parts of the country now, looking at what we can do to intensify things there, to, uh, to help bring the, the rate of infection down there. That was the Prime Minister on September the 18th. What he didn't yet know was that the virus was already twisting and turning and plotting against his best-laid plans. Two days later, on September the 20th, a variant was detected in a chronically ill Covid patient in Kent. What was anecdotally apparent, and later to be confirmed by hard data, was that this brand new coronavirus was more transmissible than the common or garden Wuhan variety. But Boris Johnson knew nothing of this on October 31st, when he announced the second national lockdown, a four-week closure to try and take some of the pressure off the NHS, pressure that was becoming dangerously heavy again. So now is the time to take action 
because there is no alternative. And from Thursday until the start of December, you must stay at home. You may only leave home for specific reasons, including for education, for work. Let's say if you cannot work. Meanwhile, in mid-October, the variant had been officially isolated as B117 by the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, or COG UK, which detected the full genetic code in two samples that had been collected in Kent and London. How had the mutation occurred? An early hypothesis, and one that has yet to be confirmed, is that the treatment of chronically ill patients with convalescent plasma, the blood of people who'd recovered from COVID-19, had extended the time in which these particular patients were fighting the virus, thus giving it space to shapeshift and morph. It's a paradox of treatment therapies that, much as they may help the patient to recover, they also give the virus time to evolve and try out new genetic armaments. But, and this is the crucial bone of contention in the story, the government's Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, or SAGE, did not alert ministers to the new variant until December the 11th. Collectively, the system had acted sluggishly. It was quite clear by mid-November that things were going badly wrong in Kent and the South East. On November the 23rd, Roger Trulove, leader of Swell Borough Council in North Kent, had this to say. There's some people who are just in denial. They, they think it's a hoax, and I, I think that must be a very small proportion of the population. But in spite of all the messaging, they're clearly people who don't necessarily get what they've got to do, um, that they think it doesn't apply to them. On that very day, data had been released showing that just two regions, London and the South East, are seeing a rise in new cases in the majority of areas, with steep drops in hotspots in the north. South East England had the highest rate in the country, with rates of infection increasing in 34 of its 67 local authority areas. Matt Hancock was well aware of the problem, as he told the Commons on November the 26th. We must make the right judgments guided by the science. The majority of England will be in Tier 2, but in a significant number of areas, I'm afraid, they need to be in Tier 3 to bring case rates down. Now, I know how tough this is, both for areas that have been in restrictions for a long time, like Leicester and Greater Manchester, and also for areas where cases have risen sharply recently, like Bristol, the West Midlands and Kent. The full allocations have been published this morning and laid as a written ministerial statement just before this statement began. I understand the impact that these measures will have, but they are necessary given the scale of the threat that we face. What is so striking is that even in late November, the problem was still being attributed to patchy compliance of lockdown regulations and that there was still so little attention being paid to the possible impact of a variant virus that had been isolated more than two months before. Indeed, it was not until December the 8th that the Kentish mutation was finally declared a variant under investigation by the UK and then 10 days later reclassified as a variant of concern. Over the last few days, thanks to our world-class genomic capability in the UK, we have identified a new variant of coronavirus which may be associated with the fastest spread in the southeast of England. By this stage, Hancock and his boss, the Prime Minister, were finally persuaded that the Kentish variant was the culprit, and with good reason. 
By December the 19th, it was clear that the new flavour of COVID was much more easily transmitted, a bleak reality that drove Boris Johnson to impose Tier 4 restrictions on 18 million people across London and eastern and southeast England. Nerve Tag's early analysis suggests the new variant could increase the R by 0.4 or more. And although there's considerable uncertainty, it may be up to 70% more transmissible than the old variant, the original version of the disease. The two-week curfew led to the cancellation of millions of Christmas Day family gatherings. And any hope that the Tier 4 restrictions would get the virus under control was quickly dashed. On January the 4th, the Prime Minister announced the third lockdown with great reluctance, but in the face of overwhelming evidence from Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer, and Sir Patrick Vallance, the government's Chief Scientific Advisor, that there was what they called a material risk of the health service being overwhelmed by the number of COVID admissions. With most of the country already under extreme measures, it's clear that we need to do more together to bring this new variant under control while our vaccines are rolled out. In England, we must therefore go into a national lockdown which is tough enough to contain this variant. That means the government is once again instructing you to stay at home. By now, a nagging voice in the back of ministers' minds was growing ever more insistent. As one put it to me, why the fuck didn't Sage tell us sooner? If the scientists knew the details of the Kent variant in October, why did they wait till December to, you know, let us know? In private, the scientists reply that this sentiment shows how much the politicians still have to learn about public health policy. According to one Sage expert, Look, we have the best genomics capacity in the world. We're constantly mapping new variants more than any other nation, half of all the COVID sequencing in the world. We didn't have enough data in October to say with any confidence that this particular variant was the cause of the spike in cases. The same source added, the better question people might like to ask is, why weren't ministers interested in variants until so late in the year? And why didn't they actively seek our advice on the subject? In which context, let's return to that extraordinary statement by Dido Harding to the Science and Technology Committee on February the 3rd, that nobody could have predicted the Kentish variant. Later in the same hearing, the committee's Conservative chair, Greg Clark, invited her to revisit this remark. Now, uh, earlier in the session, Brian Harding, you said that, uh, and I quote, uh, we've seen the new variant emerge, which is something none of us were able to predict Would you just like to kind of reflect on that and was it not possible, is it not possible to be primed and ready to respond actually to mutations which most scientists we've heard from across the year have felt was not only likely but almost certain? Well, I think on the basis that this country is um, absolutely at the leading edge of genomic sequencing, we are better placed than I would argue any other country in the world to be able to spot um, new mutations and to then predict which ones will cause material problems and which ones won't. What I was referring to earlier is predicting exactly when that is going to happen and therefore um, being ahead of the curve, that's much harder. In other words, Dido Harding, who is a successful businesswoman, but was in this case speaking on behalf of the embattled science and public health community, 
was saying to the incredulous MPs, get off our back. This stuff isn't as easy as you political time servers reckon. As so often in the pandemic story, human foible and failure to communicate is as important as outright failure, and there is exasperation on both sides. The politicians accuse the scientists of giving them the wrong kind of advice or the right kind of advice but too late. The scientists throw up their hands in despair at the short-termism of the politicians and their inability to walk and chew gum at the same time. But the deeper criticism levelled in private by some of the scientists is even more damning. It is this, that Boris Johnson and his team were not only uninterested in variants of the virus until the problem was jammed in front of their faces, they had also managed to create a dream context for mutation. As we've seen, viruses always evolve. They are subject to what's called selective pressure. If we try to shut them down, they'll look for evolutionary escape hatches, changing and altering in response to any new circumstance or context. But there are contexts that they especially love. They can have great fun in the body of an infected individual patient, morphing and transforming in the course of one wretchedly long stay in hospital. What they really relish, though, the coronavirus playground, if you like, is a context of high case rates. The more people that are infected, even without symptoms, the greater scope the pathogen has to do a biological dance and try on new genetic costumes. So the most damning charge against the government is that the ferocious emergence of the Kentish variant was the consequence of bad decisions taken earlier in the year. As one SAGE member says, if we had locked down a week or 10 days earlier the first time in March, it would have made all the difference. We might have had a chance, at least a chance, of nipping the whole thing in the bud. But instead, Boris dithered until March the 23rd. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. The risks posed by AI range from bias in decision-making to misinformation and the misuse of personal information, all at an unprecedented scale. Nearly a quarter of UK businesses understand that the regulatory landscape is changing fast, and nearly half are tracking new regulatory guidance to be responsive to emerging best practice. The EY Responsible AI Service helps organisations innovate safely providing confidence that AI and generative AI technologies are developed and managed ethically, transparently and sustainably, and that potential regulatory and reputational risks are identified and mitigated. 
Discover how you can create a better working world with AI by going to ey.ai. The disaster of test and trace over the summer meant that the virus spread faster and further than it needed to, and the more it spread, the more it adapted. To this, ministers and their advisers respond angrily. As one senior source puts it, the fact is that we can't even be sure that what we call the Kentish variant was born in Kent. The whole point of these mutations is that they can happen anywhere and that they are horribly mobile. It was tracked down in Kent, but who knows where it started? What is not in doubt is the muscular power and increasingly global reach of the Kentish variant, fairly named or not. By November the 6th, it had reached California. By November the 23rd, Florida. On December the 21st, more than 40 countries halted flights from the UK. In practice, the Kentish variant is the mirror image of the UK vaccine rollout, which has been justly hailed around the world as a British success story. The mutation is a force for ill in the pandemic that we really don't want to be wrapped in the Union flag, but most certainly is in news bulletins around the world. The potentially fast-spreading coronavirus strain causes alarm around the world. Meanwhile, the U.S. Colorado health officials have identified the first case of a new coronavirus variant first discovered in the U.K. As that highly contagious U.K. variant spreads across the country. Now confirmed in at least 19 states. The CDC fearing it could make the pandemic much worse. When ministers boasted about the world-leading nature of the British management of the pandemic, as they did for much of 2020, this probably wasn't what they had in mind. Still, even before Christmas, the UK variant wasn't the only new villain in town. On December the 23rd, British scientists announced that another variant, first detected in South Africa in October, had now been isolated in two patients in England. This afternoon, the health secretary revealed that two cases of yet another variant have been detected in the UK. This one was first discovered in South Africa. Tonight, the government said it was temporarily stopping flights from there from 9am tomorrow. Labelled B1525, the South African variant had been traced in 147 people in the UK by February the 5th, at least 11 of whom had not set foot in South Africa. The worrying South African variant of the Covid virus has slipped the net and has now begun to spread within the UK. The new flavour of coronavirus was spreading, in other words, albeit more slowly than its Kentish cousin. What worried ministers and scientists alike was that the South African variant showed limited signs of cutting through the protection offered by the vaccine. The Kentish variant was more transmissible, yes, but the early data suggested that it didn't put those who had received the jab in any greater danger. But the South African variant, well, that was a different story. Nicknamed Rio in the Cabinet Office, with occasional bad-taste bursts of the Duran Duran song of the same name, this mutation was starting to work on ways of getting through the vaccine firewall. Here's Professor Sarah Gilbert, head of the Oxford University team that created the AstraZeneca vaccine, on the BBC's Andrew Marr show on February the 7th, explaining the problem. What we're seeing from other vaccine developers is that they have a, a reduction in efficacy against some of the variant viruses. And what that is looking like is that um, we may not be reducing the total number of cases, but there's still protection in that case against deaths, hospitalizations and severe disease. So that pushes us more back to the first scenario with the pyramid of cases that I was talking about. Uh, maybe we won't be reducing the number of cases as, as much, 
but we still won't be seeing the, the deaths, the hospitalizations, and the severe disease. And that's really important for healthcare systems. So it's very important to emphasize that the South African variant has not put anyone who has received the jab in mortal danger or even at risk of serious illness. But at a time of justified celebration about the vaccine rollout in the UK, its emergence was a reminder that this was a war potentially without end. Here's Patrick Vallance at a Downing Street press conference on January the 22nd, emphasising the vigilance required by the rise of the variants. We are more concerned that they have certain features, which means they might be less susceptible to vaccines, but they are definitely of more concern uh, than the one in the UK at the moment, and we need to keep looking at it and, and, and studying this very carefully, which is what's going on in laboratories across the world at the moment. The virus would not just give up, in other words. On the contrary, the logic of evolution would send it seething into battle against the vaccine that was so successfully thwarting its work. The same is true of the so-called Brazilian variant, or P1 as it's known in the lab. This version was not, in fact, spotted in Brazil at all, but by Japan's National Institute of Infectious Diseases on January the 2nd in four travellers from Brazil's Amazonas state. The discovery rang alarm bells for one obvious reason. With almost 250,000 deaths to date, Brazil is second only to the US in COVID fatalities. So its epidemiological data is of concern to the whole world. What worries ministers and scientists in the UK and everywhere else is what happened in the rainforest city of Manaus, the capital of the state of Amazonas. In the first wave of the virus, up to three quarters of the city's population were infected, a terrible toll that ought to have had the consolation of offering high levels of immunity. The surviving population, or enough of them, would have generated antibodies to protect them from a further surge. But that is precisely what happened to the dismay of the city's inhabitants. By mid-January, Manaus was running low on basic medical supplies and private citizens were taking to the road in conditions of extreme heat and rainfall to get oxygen and other essentials for their families. Bodies were reportedly being buried in mass graves as COVID returned for a second savage bite. Manaus in the Amazon rainforest is at the epicentre. It's where the new strain was found. In Amazon's biggest city, Manaus, hospitals are close to collapse with medical supplies dwindling and intensive care units nearing capacity. This city was absolutely flawed in the first outbreak. It's never recovered. It's through the floor now. The Brazilian variant shares with the South African version a genetic mutation called E484K, or EEK as it is nicknamed, that seems to cut through existing immunity, though not predictably so. Again, there is no evidence that it will endanger those who have received the vaccine. On February the 21st, Matt Hancock told Sky's Sophie Ridge that the incidence of the two main variants was falling in the UK. Well, there is evidence that the measures that we're taking, both the enhanced contact tracing and also the stricter measures at the border, there is evidence that these are working uh, and that uh, we've now got a much stronger uh, vigilance in place because everybody coming into the country has to be tested and we sequence the results of those tests. Um, and we've also got a, a very strong set of actions working with the local authorities, very specifically in the areas where a new variant is found. And we hit it hard and send in that enhanced contact tracing uh, and go door to door. So we've now got this program in place to be able to really, really 
try to stamp out a new variant where we see it. And there is evidence that that is working. Uh, so evidence that that's what, sorry, does that mean that you think the cases might be coming down of those variants? Uh, yes, I do. So how have these mutations been contained so far? By two principal means. First, border control and quarantine. On February the 16th, the government announced details of its plan to ban travel from 33 red-list countries, except for UK and Irish nationals who would have to quarantine for 10 days in a government-approved hotel. We've also banned all travel from 22 countries where there is a risk of known variants, including uh, South Africa, Portugal and South American nations. And in order to reduce the risk posed by UK nationals and residents returning home from these countries, I can announce that we will require all such arrivals who cannot be refused entry to isolate in government-provided accommodation, such as hotels, for 10 days without exception. Labour's John Ashworth, the Shadow Health Secretary, urged the Prime Minister to go further and to consider even tighter border controls. Now these variants bring into focus the importance of border controls. Times Radio reports that hotel quarantine arrangements won't be in place until the 15th of February. Why the delay? And according to the Times newspaper, Sage warned two weeks ago tougher quarantine restrictions for everyone entering the UK were needed. The government disputes this interpretation, so will he publish the Sage minutes from 21st of January? The problem is that no modern nation dependent upon the supply chains of the global economy and the movement of individuals across the border can long sustain such restrictions. The Department for Transport has already been tasked with setting up a successor body to the Global Travel Task Force established in October to coordinate the phased resumption of relatively normal border control. But as one senior virologist put it to me, travel is pretty much all or nothing. Once anything like regular human traffic resumes, you can work on the basis that any significant variant will get here sooner or later. So the second weapon against variant outbreaks is more important for the long term, so-called surge testing. Here's Steve McManus, the Director of Trace Operations at Test and Trace, explaining to the Science and Technology Select Committee on February the 3rd how the system works. So in relation to uh, the areas that we've been identified um, for the new variants, um, we have um, increased, um, we're doing some work to increase the speed of sequencing under um, Mr Hewlett's kind of team and looking to bring that uh, turnaround time for sequencing uh, further uh, shorter. We're surging additional uh, testing capacity, so the mobile testing units, but also, as you would have heard, the, um, test, the testing kits that can be delivered door to door. So as we're effectively saturating a geographical area to be able to uh, increase the level of tests, but in, therefore, importantly, be able to increase the level of sequencing. Uh, and understand the, the potential community transmission. And then finally, we've set up a dedicated variant of concern contact tracing cell nationally, so as we can actually fast track then even further uh, the tracing element and work directly with the local health protection teams and local authority teams to support uh, more rapid isolation for the citizen. This sounds good. But it would be a stretch to say that there is full confidence within the government or the scientific community that the hitherto shambolic test and trace system is up to the task. 
as one who's been involved with the pandemic strategy for the full 11 months says, we want it to work, it has to work, but we're also conscious that the success of vaccine rollout doesn't mean that everything else will suddenly be a success too. And testing and diagnostics have been by far the weakest point in the whole system all the way through. Such anxieties are significant because they lead us back, as always in the story of the pandemic, to the mind of the Prime Minister. His stop-go approach to Covid restrictions, his own brush with mortality last April, his consciousness that his place in history is as likely to be defined by how posterity judges his handling of Covid as by the success or failure of Brexit. Talking to those who know him best, I was struck by how important the threat of variance has become to the PM's thinking. If he and his colleagues were late to this particular party, they are not leaving any time soon. Take the initially controversial instruction to healthcare professionals on December the 30th to extend the time between the two vaccine doses from two to three weeks to 12 weeks, an idea that had first been proposed by Tony Blair and then embraced by the Prime Minister. Here's Professor Jonathan Van Tam, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, defending the change on LBC Radio on January the 13th. And the bottom line is that um, we've all got older loved ones. And if we want to protect as many as we can as quickly as possible with a meaningful amount of protection, then the right strategy for us is to give the initial first dose and come back for the second when we've given more people the initial first dose. It's really um, boiling down to if you've got two grandparents Mm. and you've got two vaccines, what do you do? Do you protect? Do you give two doses to one and leave the other one with nothing? In public, the government and its advisers emphasised the unpredictability of supply chains and the need to get at least one jab into as many arms as quickly as humanly possible. But vaccine supply was not the only issue, as one number 10 source puts it. By the end of the year, Boris was really aware of the menace of the variants. He'd got the message that high case rates would lead to more of them, and who knows what might happen if one of them was truly vicious. A big part of the changed dosage plan was to reduce the risk of mutations by hopefully bringing down infection numbers. Even more interesting is the pointed caution that characterised the Prime Minister's lockdown exit plan on February the 22nd and differentiated it sharply from previous promises of swift emancipation. I want to be frank about exactly what that means and the trade-offs. Involved. I won't be buccaneering, as you put it, with, uh, with people's lives. It's right gradually to replace the protection afforded by the lockdown. And our approach is to move with the utmost care. We've got to be humble in the face of nature. It, it is important uh, also to be, uh, to be cautiously, cautiously cautious. This less reckless approach to unlocking the country was intrinsically sensible. Johnson wants this to be the last lockdown and has been steered towards a less buccaneering approach in general by a new cohort of advisers. But the change was also, to a considerable extent, the consequence of a specific concern that has not been hitherto reported. According to one source close to the PM, what happened was this. The scientists told Boris that the next month looked like a variant minefield that the genomic evidence made them very wary about February and March and what surprises the virus might have in store. Of course, they could well be wrong, but the warning definitely got under his skin. This meant that even the reopening of schools on March the 8th was at risk, a risk in the end that Boris Johnson decided he had to take. 
but the tests and conditions written into the whole lockdown plan are no accident. Apprehension about new and existing variants is present everywhere in the strategy. There are tripwires and emergency brakes everywhere to enable the PM to slow down or halt the unlocking process. And if you're wondering why you won't be able to go to your local for a pint before May the 17th at the earliest, look towards Kent, South Africa and Brazil. Fear of the mutants looms large in the PM's mind, and with good reason. On the plus side, the vaccine companies are already gearing up to re-engineer their jabs as the virus mutates. If someday it is an emergency, we can go as rapidly as possible down a practice path to make the strain change uh, quick uh, and, and, and reliable. Thank you. Professor Gilbert? Well, the approach that Oxford and AstraZeneca are taking together is very similar to, to that that Pfizer have just um, outlined. So... Uh, we are working to produce new versions of the vaccine. Both of these vaccine um, technologies are platform technologies. They're designed to easily accept a new antigen, whether it's from a different virus or just a different version of the virus that we were already working to protect people against. So that's being done. We are generating in Oxford the initial um, stocks of those new variants of the vaccine that get passed on to AstraZeneca, who then um, upscale manufacturing uh, we have plans for clinical trials to be taking place from the early summer with batches of the new variants of the vaccine. At present, there may be no requirement for a new vaccine this year. If the need arises, the re-engineered jabs will require three to four months of clinical trials and, crucially, a sufficient level of coronavirus in the community for such trials to be meaningful. This is the trickiest bit about such trials, a sting in the tail, if you like. With any new treatment, double-blind tests mean that there is a group of patients that receive the new product and a control group that receives a placebo. And unless there is a measurable risk of them catching COVID, which is to say enough virus in circulation, the test results don't tell you very much. That aside, the pharmaceutical industry is already capable of producing a second-generation booster by the autumn if the need arises, assuming that the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency gives the new product the green light and there are no manufacturing glitches. But two huge questions linger. The first is, what will happen when border controls are relaxed, as they must be if the UK economy is to stand a chance of recovering? It's one of the scariest variables, says one minister. If the last 11 months have taught us anything, it's that the names we give variants are pretty meaningless. They might come from South Africa or Brazil or wherever the next one is first detected. But in the end, sooner or later, they'll end up here. The idea of the UK as a zero Covid nation is daft and in any case unattainable. We have to assume that new variants will arrive on these shores during 2021. Behind the scenes, AstraZeneca, which manufactures the Oxford jabs, is already working on so-called dedicated vaccines, highly bespoke immunisations that can be specifically engineered to deal with a hotspot outbreak of a new mutation. For this reason, some of those advising the government think that the PM was foolish to declare that this would be the last lockdown and think he will be forced to eat his words by the need for, at the very least, localised quarantines to contain surges of new mutations. 
In fact, the 68-page document setting out the detailed provisions of the plan says that the government will indeed take a highly precautionary approach, acting fast to address outbreaks. But the public will remember the PM's repeated promise that the exit from closure would be irreversible. As one senior Conservative figure puts it, this was a silly hostage to fortune by Boris. The truth is that there may well be a variant that escapes vaccine protection or diminishes it sufficiently that tight controls are needed again. They might not be national, but they'll still be required. Now, even if the measures are entirely sensible, they'll look like a failure by the Prime Minister who promised that the path out of lockdown was irreversible. The second overarching question is how to prevent developing countries from becoming a permanent greenhouse for new variants, some of which will be more dangerous and inevitably make their way around the planet. The ethical case for assisting poorer nations with vaccination is of course compelling and underpins the COVID-19 Vaccines Global Access or COVAX scheme. By the end of 2021, COVAX aims to have administered 2 billion doses. Here's Pope Francis in August weighing in to make this moral case. It would be sad if the rich are given priority for the COVID-19 vaccine. It would be sad if this vaccine became the property of this or that nation, if it is not universal and for everyone. But the achievement of this objective is not just an altruistic goal. Successful vaccine rollouts in the developed nations will not stop the virus mutating elsewhere. High case rates, remember, are what the virus loves best as it itches to mutate, and it is not fussy about where on the surface of the planet it does so. In principle, this is common ground. You will often hear it said by ministers, public health officials and their counterparts around the world that nobody is safe until everyone is safe. And here in the United Kingdom, the birthplace of Edward Jenner, who pioneered the world's first vaccine, we are determined to do everything in our power, to work with our friends across the UN, to heal those divisions and to heal the world. So much for the statements of fine intent. The fact remains that 130 countries have still not received a single vaccine dose. 75% of vaccines administered so far have been confined to 10 countries. At the Science and Technology Select Committee meeting last week, the Scottish Nationalist MP Carol Monaghan pressed Nadim Zahawi, the vaccine deployment minister, on this very point. I think uh, you know, our interest is the world's interest, which is to protect uh, uh, as many people as rapidly as possible. Obviously, our priority has to be, any government's priority has to be the safety and protection of its own citizens. And that's exactly my focus and the team's focus on both supply and, and deployment. But nevertheless, it is equally important, which is why it was from the inception of the Vaccines Task Force that the remit was both, uh, you know, secure the vaccines for the UK, but also uh, think about and secure and help the rest of the world. Uh, because as I say, until everybody's safe, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, virus will continue to spread. And that's why it's so important, which is why the Prime Minister led on this at the G7 as well. You can feel Zahawi squirming between two positions. On the one hand, the absolute priority of vaccinating UK citizens. On the other, the strategic pointlessness of doing so unless the rest of the world is vaccinated too. 
Add to this the fact that developing nations may end up with vaccines unused by richer countries that are quickly made redundant or at least less potent by variants. The wealthy nations use the re-engineered jabs, the less affluent have to make do with the leftovers and hand-me-downs, with the result that even more mutations may arise in their territories. In the end, the distinction between domestic and foreign strategy against Covid is a false dichotomy. It's one single campaign fought on countless terrains in a bewildering variety of ways. Populist governments hate this. They hate uncertainty. They like simple answers to complex questions. They wanted to get Brexit done, and they did. Now they want to get Covid done and see the vaccine as the means of doing so. Except that one of the defining characteristics of a lethal virus, perhaps the defining characteristic, is uncertainty and unpredictability. Coronavirus has not yet mutated in such a way that it escapes vaccine protection. And there is no intrinsic reason to think that it is going to. But it might. That's the point. And that's why everybody involved in the campaign against Covid has to behave as if it is going to happen. This is how Professor Wendy Barclay of Imperial College London put it to the same select committee meeting. I don't think we will see a complete escape. I think that what we will see is that we'll see a gradual loss of efficacy and at some point we will need to make a decision about how low does that mismatch go before we we need to update the vaccine. At a time when ministers' instinct is to wave the British flag and talk of businesses reopening, families reunited and summer holidays, This is a tough constraint to accept. They yearn to make unconditional promises, ink release dates indelibly into the calendar and get the country ready for the party of the century. But they can't. They just can't. This vicious virus has lost the battle of the vaccine but has not yet conceded defeat in the war. It has unfinished business with humanity and will harness all the frenzied, sleepless forces of evolution to come out on top. Even now, scientists in the US are investigating the latest stunt pulled by this tiny serial killer. A recombination event whereby two variants have joined forces, the Kentish version and a new Californian flavour, to form a specially mutated hybrid. It's too early to say if this synthesis is responsible for the recent spike of cases seen in Los Angeles, but the discovery of the first recombination of COVID-19 isn't a happy omen. Odd as it might sound, most of the government figures I spoke to in preparing this story steered me towards realism. They know that the vaccine is a big success story, but they have learned to fear complacency the hard way. In the words of one cabinet minister, I feel bad about this, but there are times when I want to warn people not to get too cheerful too soon. The jab is a miracle, but it's not the end of the story. He's right. The mutants are still on the march, still polluting the stream of optimism and relief, still scheming and plotting in their microscopic hives. Now, more than ever, as our prospects brighten a little, we must hope that the might of science can stay ahead of the blind but deadly force of evolution, and that the tectonic plate of uncertainty, shuddering ominously beneath us, does not suddenly and terribly erupt.
Hello, it's me, Besha, again. Thanks for listening this week. And if you're a fan of this podcast and you want to help shape the stories we tell and how we tell them, why don't you join Tortoise? That's the newsroom where I work as an editor, as well as making this podcast. Tortoise is an open newsroom, and so there are plenty of opportunities for you to get involved and to join in in editorial meetings and events. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 50, and you can get a half-price membership. Thanks, and see you next week. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. UK business leaders are quietly confident that better times are coming. More than half of those who responded to the recent EY CEO Outlook survey believe their profitability would increase in 2024. As businesses look to the future, transformation is clearly front and centre on the 2024 CEO agenda with the vast majority of leaders planning to maintain or accelerate their transformational change in 2024. With 76% of CEOs in agreement that AI will deliver transformative efficiency benefits to their organisation, how can AI be put to use to enhance innovation efforts? Find out how integrating AI into your business could minimise the negative impacts on the workforce, boost productivity and improve overall employee experience by reading the full report at ey.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.